We'll see. Thank you for being here today. It's good to see you. Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus 23. Exodus 23. <clears throat> I'm going to address something before I get into the sermon today, if that's okay. And it was something that uh, along the way I knew I was going to have to talk about at some point. But last week at the fellowship meal, I was asked a question, and I, I knew at some point I was going to have to address this question, and this is as good a sermon as any to address this question. And so here's the question. Do you think that every Israelite that came out of Egypt was saved? That was a question. My answer is, is no. Matter of fact, the Bible is very clear about that. The most clear passage in Scripture is 1 Corinthians 10 and the first five verses. We'll, I won't take time to read them here, but you can read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 5, and it's very clear that those Israelites, not all of them, were saved. As a matter of fact, um, uh, from Old Testament to New Testament, the Bible is clear that there's only one true Israel, and they're not all physical descendants of Abraham. As a matter of fact, most of the physical descendants of Abraham are not true Israel, Okay. Descendants of Abraham are those who have circumcised hearts. The, Moses told the Israelites to circumcise their hearts. In Deuteronomy 10, 16, he said, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and no longer be stubborn. So he's giving them a, a command. Later, Jeremiah said this. He said, um, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all of those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Now, who would that be? That's descendant, physical descendants of Abraham. Then notice what he says. He says, I'm sorry, he says, yet all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Okay? Now, let's try to put this together. What is a circumcised heart? A circumcised heart is one in which the Holy Spirit has made alive. As a matter of fact, Paul makes this crystal clear. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Okay? Now, he's telling this to Jewish people who assumed that because they were physically circumcised, that they were the children of promise, they were the ones who are going to receive all the promises of the Old Testament. And Paul is making clear that they are not because he says in the very next verse, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. Okay, so what the Bible teaches is that that Old Testament physical act is symbolic of what goes on in the heart. Okay, meaning that in the Old and New Testament, there is only one true Israel. And so the promises of God to Israel through Abraham and all that are only to the true Israel. That's what the Bible teaches. There's only one true Israel. So when you hear me say things like this, this is what, a couple things I've said in the series. I've said Exodus is the pattern of our salvation, we are saved in, um, we are saved and we're called to obey. Uh, what I'm telling you then is that the example of Israel is typological. Typological, they're, they're a type. 
They are, they are a physical, historical picture of New Testament spiritual realities. And so therefore, the, the, the Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea, the wilderness wandering, and all those things are simply types. They actually happened, but they also represent the spiritual reality of the church. Now, the Israelites themselves that came out of Egypt still had to be saved. Okay? Um, they had to be born again before they could see the Lord and enter heaven. And that's something important for you to understand. So when I say that Exodus is a picture of our salvation, I'm not saying Exodus is a picture of any salvation of theirs other than from physical slavery. Okay, that's all that was for them. They still had to believe and be, be born again. The, the plan of salvation is the same from Old to New Testament. Now, in our passage today, uh, these verses, we have come to probably the most important passage in the Old Testament. We, we see God's, we're going to see God's promise that, war, that the war has been won, but there are many skirmishes that um, they must face in a promised land. And then we're going to see a worship service. Chapter 24 is a worship service, and it's in the form of a covenant ceremony. So if you'll stand with me, we'll read a scripture, Exodus 23, beginning in verse number 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way to bring you to the place that I have prepared. By the way, people in my class today, there's that angel, okay? The, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Lord, I thank you for scripture and how that it makes us alive. It, it regenerates our hearts. It causes us to be holy. And I pray that today uh, you will do two things for us. Number one, you will help us to gr understand greater the spiritual battle and the help that we have in it, that the victory has been won, that we'll see the, 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 the wonderful picture of our salvation and number two, Lord, that we will be drawn to worship you and glorify you and be drawn to your glory more than any lesser item that gets our attention. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you. All right, so I'm just going to get right to it. Uh, verse number 20, who's this angel? Who is this angel? Did you know there's at least five interpretations of who this angel is? But from the text, we see some obvious clues. Look at verse number 21. We'll see the first obvious clue who this angel is. The angel had the Lord's name in him. See where God says his name is in me? Or my name is in him, I'm sorry. Secondly, look at verse number 21. You see the angel had the power to pardon. Do angels, as we know, like cherubs and all that, do they have the ability to pardon sin? The answer is no. And the third is in verse number 22. Verse number 22 says, carefully obey his voice and do all that I say. Did you catch what just happened, that little phrase? Carefully obey his voice and do what I say. In other words, the angel and God are treated synonymously. They're the same. Any guesses who this, per this angel is? Jesus Christ. This is Jesus Christ that we're talking about here. 
So with that as a baseline, I'm going to ask another question. What will Jesus do for these Israelites? What will this angel do for these Israelites? Well, he said this. He said, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you on the way and bring you to a place that I have prepared. Now, where is that place? For the Israelites, it's where? It's a promised land, right? So he says three things here. He said this angel, number one, is going to protect. Number two, he will lead. And number three, he's going to take to a place that he has prepared. Does this remind you of anything? How about John chapter 14? Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, and he is having the new covenant ceremony in the upper room. And he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said, well, how do we know the way? And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me or except by me. And so Christ was doing the same thing in the Old Testament that he is now doing. He's taking his people to a place that he has prepared for them, and he's guarding, leading, and protecting, and ultimately allowing them to go to their destination. Isn't that wonderful? And so do you see how that once again, the wilderness wanderings, the book of Exodus, is a picture of our journey. It's, it's very clear here. It serves as a physical picture, historical picture, of New Testament spiritual realities. And so the angel's conquest teaches us at least three important lessons about God's plan for our salvation. Now, if you keep reading, and we're not going to read this passage, but he says, I'm going to go before you, I'm going to fight for you, and I'm going to, um, I'm going to defeat, and he lists six nations. They're just representative, representing all the nations in Cana, Canaan and around in that area. And he says, I'm going to defeat them. They're already defeated people because I'm going to fight for you. But this conquest teaches at least three important lessons about God's plan for our salvation. Now, remember where they are. Remember where they are. They are between Egypt and the promised land. Okay? That is to say, although they were already saved, their salvation is not complete. It hasn't been consummated. Now, we're... Beyond, if you're in Christ, you are beyond Egypt, but you're not to the heavenly promised land, so your salvation hasn't been consummated either, has it? And so what we're about to look at is directly applicable to your Christian life today. They had been baptized into salvation through the waters of the Red Sea. They were on their way to the promised land, but in order for them to get their full final salvation, there were some enemies to conquer. And we're in the same position, spiritually speaking. We can map out uh, the story of Israel's salvation somewhere in the spiritual geography of our own souls. God has won a great victory for us. We have been baptized in the salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now we're on our way to the promised land. The glorious heaven that God has prepared for all of his friends. 
but we still have enemies to face. The victory that Jesus won is not yet complete, and we're still striving to be sanctified. We're struggling against the attacks of Satan, and what Israel's angels can teach us about the conquest and fight is very important to us, and there's three things that we see here, three lessons. Number one, the victory belongs to the Lord. Did you know that? The victory belongs to the Lord. Look at verses 22 and 23 with me. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, I, I will blot them out is what he says, right? Now, did God do what he promised? Well, if, we're not going to turn there, but if you fast forward to Joshua chapter 2, there's this woman named Rahab who housed some of the spies from, uh, from Israel, two of the spies from Israel, and she said, we saw all the great works that your God did, and our hearts melted. And so God has already put the fear of him in the hearts of the Canaanites, and he fought for them. And God, don't miss this, God still has that effect on his enemies today. But our, our battle is, is spiritual and not physical. And that's one of the major differences between the Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament, the battles were physical, historical. In the New Testament era, the battles are spiritual and even future. Even spiritual warfare there can even be frightening, can it? Facing down the emissaries of Satan in whatever form they are, many times it's government control, and other times it's religious zealots. That is a frightening proposition. Satan is very powerful, but he is defeated. He was defeated on the cross. He's a defeated enemy. And so here's the question then, same question that the Israelites had asked, how do we trust God in this spiritual warfare? How did they trust God in their spiritual warfare? Well, the main thing that we are called to do is to watch and pray and believe and study God's Word. However, we are to be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Ephesians 6, verse number 10. The battle and the victory belong to God, but we should not struggle for victories on our own. Don't struggle for the victories that He promised to win. We pray. We study. We watch. And we believe. And we're always putting off sin. We're putting on Jesus Christ, aren't we? That's the spiritual battle that we face. Secondly, second lesson, victory doesn't come all at once, but little by little. Look at verse number 29 and 30. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. Remember, if you study their history very closely, the actual land that they possessed when they went into the promised land was very small. And they kept 
tr- well, they did expand their borders, but they did not believe God like they should have. Now, that's what Joshua and Judges are about, by the way. Uh, they didn't believe God like they should. It was only when they got a king, King David, that their territory expanded, King Solomon as well. But it was little by little, little by little. And it's not always God's plan to give us instant total victory. Wouldn't that be great? Usually our spiritual progress comes little by little. However, even this can be by our benefit. We, we prefer to be sanctified right away. I know I do. I wish you all were sanctified right away. No, I'm just kidding. So, without any struggle. But for many merciful reasons, God does not allow this to happen. He wants us to learn how to depend on Him in ways that we never would unless we had to persevere through gradual conquest of our sin. Are you still conquering sin? Yeah, there's some people wish you'd do it a little faster. This is also true for the church in general. The kingdom of God has been spreading in the way that Jesus said it would. It's like leaven in a lump of dough. It's like the mustard seed that gradually grows and grows and grows. The kingdom of God is conquering in the exact same way. Little by little, almost imperceptibly, God is working out His purpose until people, um, until all His people ultimately are saved. Isn't that wonderful? That, that, by the way, that's why uh, one of the reasons why I did the devotion I did on Friday. Because we like to see great displays of power, right? But worldwide, the church, churches, individual congregations are very small, and it seems like at any moment they're going to get snuffed out. And that's the way God intended it, believe it or not. Because then the church relies upon Him and not on themselves. Knowing that God works little by little helps us to gain perspective on some of our frustrations. Sometimes we struggle so hard with a particular sin and we wish that God would just take it away. Anybody there? Okay, we all, nobody, everybody's afraid to raise their hand. All right, come on. You're there, aren't you? If you're not there, you better check some stuff out. So um, we, we are tempted to give up. And sometimes we're even tempted to doubt that the Holy Spirit has come with the power to change us. Those ever been your thoughts? But God is working, little by little, making us holy. And sometimes in our ministry, we get frustrated. We long to see more fruit. Or perhaps we wonder when God will give us an opportunity to serve Him in a way that we've always dreamed. Yet God is at work. Little by little, His Spirit is preparing people uh, to trust in Christ for their salvation. And at the same time, He's preparing us for a wider field of ministry. Little by little. That's the way God works. Then third lesson, don't compromise with sin. While we're waiting for God to win the full and final victory, and by the way, when does that happen? It happens when we cross over into eternity, doesn't it? Whether when the Lord comes back or when uh, our bodies die. But um, we're waiting for God to win the full and final victory. We must do everything we can to separate ourselves from sin. Look at verse number 24. He says, you shall not bow down to the gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Totally destroy the idols of the Canaanites. 
over and over in the history of Israel, it shows us what happens when we compromise against the idols of this world. You know, we're, we're tempted to think because our salvation is secure that it won't harm us to expose ourselves to a little bit of sin. We all do that. We tell ourselves it's okay to indulge in a little bit of self-pity. Woe is me. Especially since life is so discouraging. We think it's all right to look at pornography because we still have things under control. We, we think it's all, we're, we don't really have a drinking problem because we have only gotten drunk occasionally. We cut a few corners at work and nobody will ever know. We enjoy a juicy morsel of gossip. Or we shade the truth. We don't lie exactly, but, but you know, if somebody gets the wrong impression and it works to our advantage, we don't take the trouble to correct it. These are the little kinds of compromises that trap Christians every day, and they inevitably lead to bigger and bigger sins. Think about the little, the little misunderstanding that you don't correct. Well, then what happens the next time somebody brings it up? You have to keep, you have to keep going with that, don't you? You see, we do not compromise with sin as believers. Now we get to chapter number 24. Chapter 24 is a worship service, and this is the the pinnacle of the Israelites' relationship with God. This is the most important chapter in the Old Testament, and you'll see why in a moment. In chapter 24, the covenant is confirmed. And since the Old Testament pattern is the same as the New Testament, we see this, that God secured victory over his enemies. He just got done talking about that, right? He called his people into covenant with him. Jesus secured victory over our spiritual enemies and now calls us into a new covenant with him. And in order for any covenant to be properly established, it must be confirmed. And we have this chapter in this chapter, a worship service. There's a call to worship. There's the reading of God's word. There's a confession of faith and a promise to obey. And then there's a sharing of a meal with God. And ultimately, it ends with the glory of God. It's a wonderful, wonderful chapter. And so let's see the call to worship in verse number one and two. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel in worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with them. And so this is Moses up on the mountain. God says, hey, go down, call them up. They can stay away, but you can come into my presence. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu were called before the Lord. Moses alone was with God. Why is it only Moses that's with God? Because Moses is a mediator. He was a chosen mediator between God and the Israelites. He represented the people before God, and he represented God, uh, the holy God, um, to the sinful people. And we can only draw close to God, and we can only be in his presence when we come in his terms. And we must, must, must come through a mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He's our mediator. 
And so we have in verse number 3 in chapter 24, the reading of God's word. Moses read the words of the covenant to the people. And he says, um, verse number 3 says, And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And notice what he did. He read the words and the rules. Now, what are, are, what are those? Well, the word here, words, where he read the words, it can be translated commandments. So that would be most likely the Ten Commandments, right, of chapter 20. And then it says, and he read the um, rules. And that word rules is commonly translated ordinances, and if you remember in our uh, study, he gave the Ten Commandments, and then all the way up to chapter 23, verse number 19, he gives rules that further explain those Ten Commandments. That's what, that's what Moses read here. He read the Ten Commandments and then all those ceremonial applications afterwards. And uh, you know, remember last week, we covered them last week. I'm not going to go into them. But notice about the text, something interesting about the text. Look at chapter 24, and... Moses read the covenant twice, and the people confirmed it twice. You see that? Verse number 3, and then again in verse number 7. Well, what, what's going on with that? Well, in ancient times, this is what they did. This is, this is what it happened in every society. In ancient times, when a covenant was being made, it was read to the people the first time, so they understood the terms of the covenant. Okay? Then once they said, you know what, this covenant is acceptable, uh, the covenant was read again, and the second reading, the vow was affirmed to the people. And that's exactly what happens here. Now you think that, that's a little bit strange. It, it's not. You're used to it. You just don't realize it. Have you ever been to a wedding where you have the declaration of intent? And then you had the, the saying of the vows later on. Exact same things going on. So we, we're familiar with that today. We just don't realize it. And that, this is what's going on here in this chapter. Now, in between, in between these two readings is worship. To show his people how serious he was in demanding their obedience, God sealed the covenant relationship with blood. And this was the second main task that Moses had to do. After he read the law, verse number 3, then he made sacrifices and then sprinkled blood as a confirmation. Look at verses 4 to 6 with me. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord and Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half of the blood he threw on the altars. Now, following the second reading of the covenant in verse number 7, look at verse number 8. Moses took the blood, that would be that second half that's left, and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And so... Let me explain a little bit about this. If you remember last week, we talked about this. We were amazed what kind of a God would tell us people, look, when you make an altar, just make a pile of dirt or take some unhewn stones. 
and worship me. Don't hew them. Don't make anything ornate. Just do it that way. Well, Moses is obeying that. And so he makes an altar with 12 stones, pillars. They call them pillars, but they're stones, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, the altar was a place of worship. And this is appropriate because sinners can only worship uh, the holy God on the basis of sacrifice. And we can only worship in the way he prescribes. The only way that you and I can come before a holy God is on the basis of sacrifice. Now, there were two sacrifices. You remember me talking about them last week? The exact two sacrifices that we talked about last week are here, the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. The burnt offering, if you remember, is where the entire animal was consumed. Nothing was left over, and we said last week that that represented full atonement. Full atonement for sin. The other sacrifice was the peace offering. Remember, we said it was a fellowship offering. Literally, a fellowship meal with God, because you took the fat, the best part of the animal, and you burn it on the altar. Then you took the rest of the animal that you didn't burn on the altar, and you roasted it, and you ate it yourself. You grilled it. Sounds kind of good right now. And served it for dinner. But before any of this could be done, the blood had to be drained. And the blood from the fellowship offerings was carefully collected in large bowls, and then it was sprinkled. And this was the most important part of the ceremony. He took the blood, and the first thing he did was he sprinkled it on the altar. Uh, later on, we learn it, he uses hyssop. He sprinkled it on the altar. Okay? And a- after reading the book of the covenant, then he took the other half and he sprinkled it on the people. Now, why did he do something like that? That sounds weird and primitive and barbaric. What was the purpose of splattering the people with blood? Well, the blood showed that the covenant was a matter of life and death. At the same time, the blood was also a sign of God's mercy. So how did that work? First, Moses sprinkled it on the altar, which showed that the people's sins were forgiven. The bloody altar always signifies a forgiveness of sins. Atonement has been made. God's accepted the sacrifice for the sin. It was a propitiation. Propitiation is a big term that means it turns God's wrath away, right? Then the blood was sprinkled on the people, and that blood showed that the sacrifice was accepted by God. And they were now included in the covenant through the forgiveness of their sins. The blood, and therefore its benefits, was applied directly to them. And we we probably forget this many times, but blood has always been the basis of our relationship with God. Any human who wants to have a relationship with God, there has to be blood involved in it. Blood is still the, the, the basis of the New Covenant relationship. When the New Testament talks about Christ, it often describes a saving work in terms of blood. 
Romans 5, 9, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. I'm sorry, that's Romans 3, 25. Romans 5, 9, we have now been justified by his blood. We have Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. In Ephesians 2, 13, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Colossians 1, 19 and 20, making peace by the blood of his cross. And Revelation 1, 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. It is by the blood of Jesus that we are justified, redeemed, reconciled, forgiven, and released, and we are saved by the blood, the blood of the covenant. Jesus did that. And once you see, uh, this, this has been one of the biggest blessings. There's, there's so many parallels here between this and the night before Jesus was betrayed. Or the night Jesus was betrayed, I'm sorry. But I want to show you something. Look at Exodus 24 and verse number 8. In Exodus 24, 8, when Moses sprinkled the blood on the people, he said, Behold the blood of the covenant. But when Jesus inaugurated the new covenant in that last supper, he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What an amazing parallel that is, isn't it? Behold the blood of the covenant. And there both are covenant ceremonies going on. The covenant ceremony at Sinai going on uh, 1,400 years before Jesus inaugurated the new covenant ceremony, behold my blood. Isn't that wonderful? Now we see why the cross must be the center of our salvation. It is only by the blood Jesus shed on the cross that we are able to have a covenant relationship with God. And the application is very, very simple, isn't it? The only way to be saved is to be forgiven and have a right relationship with God and ultimately get to heaven and it's by the blood of Jesus Christ. If ever we are to be saved, we must have to deal with Jesus. His atoning work must be applied directly to our sins, sprinkled by, with the blood, Hebrews 9.21 says, for it is only by trusting in the blood that he shed on the cross that anyone ever gets saved. Now what happens? They're called into relationship. They affirm the covenant. They worship God, and then they see God. They see God. The covenant is confirmed. They have atonement. They have fellowship, and now they see God's glory. So now we see in the next section, 74 people ascended Mount Sinai, and they represented all Israel in a covenant meal. Can you imagine this scene? Try, try to imagine this. Dining with God on his mountain. What was that like? They went up the mountain, and it says they ate. Look at verses 10 and 11. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, pavement of sapphire stone, and like the very heaven for clearness. And so they're describing what they see. And then here's a stunning little phrase I'm going to get to in a minute. He did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Stunning. Why is that? And they beheld God, and they ate and drank. 
They saw God. They ate with God. The little comment, he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people, implies, implies they were in real danger. What, what was the command? The command was if anybody touches this mountain, anybody, any animal touches this mountain, they will die. And here these 74 people uh, climb up Mount Sinai, and the Bible is very specific saying he did not lay his hand on the chief people, the chief of the people. They were in real danger. A visual encounter with Almighty God put them in jeopardy of sudden death. No man can see God unless he will die. And yet the Bible indicates almost with a sense of surprise they did not die. And by acknowledging the danger, the Bible confirms that these men really did see God. They did. And what did they see? Well, look at the description. We don't know. The Bible only mentions the surroundings. Look at, well, look at what Moses said. Here's what he said. Something like a pavement made of sapphire. Well, thanks a lot, Moses. That helped us out a lot. The Hebrew word for pavement there, by the way, is like um, cobblestones. It's like brick. And the word sapphire is the word lapis lazuli. Um, and it's a brilliant blue stone that's usually opaque. But here on the occasion, it's clear. It's sky blue. It's like clear sky blue. Now, what are they seeing? There's no description of God proper there, the Lord, the Father, right? Or the Son, whichever one you think it is. But it's possible. I want to give you a possible scenario of what they're seeing. They are looking up at God from underneath. This interpretation comes from comparing it with Ezekiel's vision that's described almost exactly the same way. It says in Ezekiel 122, over the heads of the living creatures, there was one like the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. So it's very possible that they were looking up underne from underneath the pavement at God. This is probably the same pavement that Moses saw it's a flawless sheet of ice blue glass. Let, so let us understand what, what's happening here. Once the covenant was confirmed, they received an invitation to meet God and eat a meal. And God gave them a glimpse of his majesty, and they ate and drank in his presence. What happened to Moses and the elders is also a story of our own salvation. There was a time when we were separated from God by our own sin. And like the Israelites, we were lawbreakers. But God atoned for our sin through the blood of his covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ sprinkled on the cross. And soon he will welcome us into his glorious presence. And then the longing of our hearts will be met when we see God face to face. Isn't that amazing? Did you know the Bible often describes our relationship with God as in terms of sharing a meal? 
In Genesis 18, Abraham shared a meal with God. Uh, King David said, you prepare a table before me. Isaiah promised that one day God would sit down with his people at a great banquet on this mountain. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and aged wine well-refined. Jesus describes his kingdom as eating and drinking. He says it's like a great, great banquet, I tell you. Many will come from the east and west to recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. God is always busy sending out invitations for his feast, isn't he? Every time the gospel is preached, people are invited to eat and drink with God. God is getting ready to throw the last and longest banquet of all, what the book of Revelation calls the wedding supper of the Lamb. Isn't he? And while we're waiting the announcement that dinner is ready, and I can't wait for that announcement, dinner is ready, God gives us a special meal to remind us that we belong to him by covenant, and it's called the Lord's Supper. And in a few minutes, we're going to eat a meal with the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? It's a physical representation of a future reality. It's a promise that one day we will be forever with the Lord eating and drinking with Him. What all the covenant feasts, uh, Moses and the meal on God's mountain, the Lord's Supper, the wedding supper of the Lamb, and all these show us is that God wants to have a relationship with us. He invites us to sit down with him and share a meal. He offers us the kind of intimate fellowship that we have with our closest family and friends when we sit down together at the dinner table. Now, I want to end on a glorious note. I'm looking at the end of chapter number 24. Exodus 24 is one of the most important chapters in the whole Old Testament, and it lays out the biblical pattern for worship. It establishes God's covenant with his people on the basis of blood. It tells how God gave his law. It shows how mortal men with their, meet their maker face to face and live to tell about it. But the climax comes at the end. When Moses entered into glory, look at verse number 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So God's in the cloud on the seventh day, calls Moses from within the cloud to come here. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. When they were looking at the cloud, all they saw was a giant billowing cloud of fire representing the holiness of God. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Can you understand why they thought that Moses was gone? He went into that fiery mountainous cloud 40 days and 40 nights. What is the conclusion of anybody who's sane? He's ashes, right? The other leaders saw the glory of God, but Moses was a mediator, the man who represented the people before God. And God not only invited him to see his glory, 
God invited him to enter his glory. Amazing. Moses kept going further up and further in until finally he was enveloped by the radiant, luminous presence of the Almighty God. And guess what? This is a story of our own salvation. Exodus 24 reveals that from beginning to end, first God calls us to worship Him by speaking to us by His Word. But we are separated from God by our sin. Therefore, we have to keep our distance until God provides atonement through the blood of the covenant, the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And once our sins are covered, we can have fellowship with God. And we sit down to feast at a banquet. But how does the story end? How does it end? It ends with us, our salvation, not just seeing God, not just seeing His glory, but actively participating in His glory in the midst of the glory cloud of the Lord God Almighty. Won't that be wonderful? What a day that will be. What a one, I love that hymn, by the way. What happened to Moses will happen to us. God will come down and lift us into his glory. God has come down in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who was sent to be our Savior. He came down so that one day we could be lifted up. What happened to Moses is a picture of what, happened, what will happen to everyone who comes to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, dear believer, glory is our destiny. We, I say it one more time. We look around and we see small churches that seem so insignificant, seem like they're going to be snuffed out. But those small churches full of handful of believers will one day see and participate in the glory of God. That is our destiny. The Bible says, look, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. And it also says this, and think about Moses going into the glory cloud when 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, we will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. We, we will go farther up and we will go farther in. And like Moses, forever and ever and ever, we will be enshrouded by the radiant, luminous glory of God. And this meal we're about to participate in is symbolic of the glory that is to follow. Lord, I thank you. I was overwhelmed this week. in the study just bursting with praise Lord I ask that our hearts longing and desire will be to see the glory of God because over and over we understand that the only thing that will ever fully satisfy us is seeing Jesus Christ in all his glory Lord, Satan is a very powerful being, but he's a defeated being. And yet, so many times we act like 
We're defeated, Lord. I pray that we will, by faith, lean day by day on the power of Jesus Christ and we will put off sin and put on Jesus Christ, that we will separate ourselves unto God in holiness without which none of us will see you. And I pray, Lord, as we begin this simple, very, very simple communion ceremony that we will meditate and think about the glorious future that we have when we will sit in your presence forever and ever and ever and we will be able to eat a meal with the God of the universe. In his name we pray. Amen.